0: Welcome back to the program. The world today is a dangerous, unstable, and violent place. And while Steven Pinker tells us today is less violent than at any other time in human history, images from Africa and the Middle East would seem to belie that. But when we look at places that have improved, in Africa, in Latin America, and even in the West, we see that women and the empowerment of women have played a key role in the transformation to a more civil world. What does this mean? Why has it happened And what does it portend for solutions to those places that still seem mired in hatred and violence? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Sally Armstrong. She is often referred to as a war correspondent to the world's women. She's been on the front lines for women's rights in Bosnia, Egypt, the Congo, and the Middle East, and Afghanistan for over 25 years. Her latest book is entitled Uprising, A New Age is Dawning for Every Mother's Daughter. It is my pleasure... To welcome Sally Armstrong to the program. Sally, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Jeff. I'm really glad to be here. It's a delight to have you here. One of the things that, that is certainly abundantly clear over the past uh, quite a few number of years now is that where women have taken charge, where women have been empowered, even in situations that are difficult in developing nations in the third world, that there has been an economic improvement. We hear this frequently What is it that is happening, though, at the core that is making this happen?
1: Well, it was uh, Jeffrey Sachs who said that the status of women and the economy are directly related. Where one's flourishing, so is the other. Where one's in the ditch, so is the other. You and I have known that for decades, but when Jeffrey Sachs said it, it gets traction. And here's how it works. If you were to go to a village in Africa, say, or in India, in Asia someplace, if they prove this, if you treat the girl child a little better than you're presently treating the girl child, give her a bit of education, a bit of health care, certain things would happen very predictably. She would marry later, she would have fewer children, and those children would be healthier. And that alone is enough to turn the economy of the village around. But you know what, Jeff? It's more than that. It, it, with the business of empowering women... And, and we're not talking about giving women more power than men, we're not talking about women being better than men, absolutely not. We're talking about giving women opportunities. And what the experts are saying is that that all over the world, in Nairobi as well as New York, that that will reduce poverty, it will cut conflict and it will improve the economy. Hard to argue
0: with that. And we've seen it play out not only in places in Africa, but we've seen it play out in lots of places in Latin America, and even in Asia. In India, we've seen a lot of it. That's true. In the years that you've been looking at this specifically, and since you wrote this book, what's changed? How has this become even more so than it has been?
1: Well, this really excites me. You know, I am a journalist, as you said. I work in zones of conflict, and my beat is to find out what happens to women and girls. It was about four years ago, Jeff, I started to feel like the earth was shifting under the status of women. And at first I thought it might be wishful thinking on my part, but I did the research, found out I was right, and that's why I wrote that book. I wanted... The world to know that for all the work we've done, the petitions, the marches, the changing constitutions, rewriting the law, it is starting to work. The research came in so fast, I could hardly keep up with it as I was writing the book. As I saw, you know, the women in the world today, they're not waiting for the UN. They're not waiting for their politicians. They're doing it themselves. And I found one example after another of this tremendous uprising. One of We're the, not at the finish line, of course.
0: One of We're the moving. places we see this happening is not just in the economics. The e- economies are difficult to change, but certainly they're subject to many influences. What we see happening in many places is a cultural shift, a cultural change. That's even more profound.
1: Well, it is. But, you know, we used to dismiss so many things as cultural When in fact, look at the women of Afghanistan, everybody said, you know, mind your own business, stop writing about our women, this is cultural. What happened to the women of Afghanistan was not cultural, it was criminal, and now everybody knows that, and it's about time. We did talk about that. But let's go back to the comment about culture. In fact, let's talk about Malala Yousafzai. Remember the 15-year-old kid sure. who wanted to go to school? She lived in the Swat Valley in Pakistan. And she wanted to go to school so she could learn to read and write and think for herself, which is the key. And, of course, the cowardly, stupid Taliban shot her in the head. But Malala went back. She finished, well, she's not finished school yet, but she went back to school. And her story, as you know, went into the stratosphere. You and I would never have heard that story, even four or five years ago, because over there they would have said, "Eh, it's a girl, who cares? They wouldn't even have reported it. And if we did hear it, you and I would whisper behind our hands, you know, the way they treat their women and girls is appalling, but there's nothing we can do about it. But that story went viral. And it's proof that the earth has shifted under the status of women. Malala has become the world's daughter. It's as though we lifted some sort of curtain and said, what the heck were we thinking? And that is, is affecting one country after another, whether it's a place where women are enormously oppressed or whether it's a place where women have already risen up and are looking to, to help their sisters.
0: To what extent is this change sustainable, and what have you seen in terms of its ability to sustain
1: well, it is sustainable because there are so many benefits. Now, it's very hard to explain that to a man in Afghanistan who has some bizarre notion that giving a woman rights means he has to give up his own rights. So you have to do a little educating on both sides. But we know it to be true that when women come to the table, the, the results change. You know, if you're in a war, let's look at that, and, and you have a, a ceasefire, for the men, that... The, And I'm not saying all men, but generally speaking, men see uh, the end of war as uh, the other side gave up. They gave up their arms. They lost. They were beaten. Women don't see it that way. Women see it as, now can I get back to the field to plant my crop? I have to get meals for my kids. I want the schools to be open. And it's not that one idea is more valuable than the other. But together, you get a ceasefire that works. You know, it was Hillary Clinton who said, um, said there's, when I was writing the book, she said, there's 39 civil wars going on in the world today. 31 of them are old wars. They keep restarting because they end with ceasefires of exhaustion rather than ceasefires that deal with what was wrong in the first place. <clears throat> she said, the same three things are wrong in every civil war. They are poverty, lack of education, and the oppression of women. Nobody talked that way before. This is new talk. And this is the way the power brokers are now viewing these situations. And, and that makes it sustainable all by itself. There's an investment from people in this.
0: And what about those places, though, in the Middle East where the situation has gotten worse as some of this empowerment has come to pass? The, the repression, the pushback to it has created situations that in some cases are even more violent.
1: Well, you know, you're referring to the Arab Spring, right? Mm -hmm. I'm actually right now doing a a follow-up story on that because I was in Cairo to do a story on the women of the Arab Spring while it was going on because it seemed they were overthrowing one government after another and and all these marvelous things were going to happen. And as you say, the whole thing fell apart. But as much as these women I am now getting back in touch with, one's in jail, one's in exile, one's in hiding, but they're all at work because they see this as a window for change. No one's in a solid position. Everyone's talking about constitutions because this is kind of new for a lot of these places. And the women see this as an opportunity to get their oar in the water in terms of including women in any documents that are written. So I don't really see it as a failure. You know, from our long distance away, we tend to look at things <coughs> either as a success or a failure. I was in Afghanistan a few months ago, and I find most of us in North America look on our intervention in Afghanistan as if not a failure, certainly not a success. But let me throw some numbers at you. There are almost nine million children back in school. The life expectancy in Afghanistan has gone from 42 years to 62 years while your tax dollars are at work. Uh, maternal and infant mortality have dropped 70%. The GDP is up fivefold. And during the presidential election last year, 75% of the people went out to vote, knowing the Taliban would rather shoot them than let them vote. So, I mean, they have huge problems with corruption, with, with security is terrible. They've got a long way to go. But those numbers speak to me of change. And by the way, those numbers wouldn't exist without the help that came from the combined militaries around the world that were, were there to bring security. You, you, can't reduce, um, uh, you, you can't reduce infant mortality without getting midwives out there, and you can't get midwives out there without security. You can't get the kids to school without security. So, so I think and the way we interpret things, whether it's the Middle East or whether it's Afghanistan, um, we're, we're sometimes too quick to say it's not working.
0: Of course, the other side of that coin, arguably, is, is the refugee crisis that we're seeing now as a result no. of all ah. of the dominoes that have fallen since Afghanistan.
1: It's true. I mean, that, that is that is an extraordinary story that, that is going on as we speak. Uh, I think this is going to change a lot of thinking. But you know I can tell you one thing. We have learned some things from the past. We haven't learned enough, but we have learned some things— I, I am pretty impressed by the way the world, now we say the world is reacting too slowly, but when the, the body of that little boy washed up on the beach, that changed thinking so fast all around the world, and you, people started acting, calling in. The typical humanitarian groups all over the United States, the church groups and the community groups, saying we have to do something about this. I think we're learning a lot.
0: To what extent, as we watch all of this play out, to, to what extent does the West, the United States, other Western countries, play a role in helping to foster this change as you see it?
1: Well, it's interesting the way you put that, Jeff. Normally, people want to blame the West, which I'm beginning to find to be a very tiresome argument. People present it as though the West is in there trying to make everybody Western. That's not true. We love other cultures. We love different foods and dances and languages and ways of behaving. But, you know, in in Afghanistan, for example, if you so much whisper the word change, the Taliban will accuse you of trying to westernize Afghanistan. And I think what they're trying to do is turn it all into boogeymen so that they don't get change. But the West does lead in many of the changes. You know, I'll tell you this. Someone told me the other day, if Facebook was a country, it would be the second biggest country in the world between China and India. And my research showed me that Facebook is what created this shift in the the earth under the status of women. Facebook started this uprising because as people in the West and the East and the North and the South began to speak to each other, they found out things they didn't know before. For example, women wearing hijab found out that despite what the fundamentalists told them, women wearing jeans were not whores after all. And women wearing jeans found out that women wearing hijab were not necessarily subjugated and oppressed. They had a lot to say, and they ought to be at the table. And when those women started that conversation, I believe that created the greatest change we've seen. And and this is sustainable, and, and there are many... It's not as though... You want to look at the United States and say, oh, I have to be like them. But women in Afghanistan started noticing women soldiers from all over the place coming in. And they thought, how come they live like that and we live like this? And and what is the difference? They began to ask questions they never asked before. This is very important.
0: And that, like so many other things, is two-edged because on the one hand, it, is, it has opened up communications. It has allowed people of the world to be in contact with each other in all the positive ways that, that you talk about. But what it's also done is create a tremendous amount of fear and pushback by those entrenched interests that are afraid of that. And that's what we see playing out even in the West today. That's so true. But you know what it
1: is? It's the 2% organized. It's the people who have a vested interest in keeping people down or keeping uh, the way unchanged. And, and you, you spend all of your time feeding the internet or the talking at work or taking out the ads to convince people of that. Most people are so busy trying to get their job done, their kids fed, going to soccer practice, doing all the kinds of things that families do, they don't have time to focus on negativity. And yet, the 2% organized will get you every time. I think people have to keep it in mind.
0: Does that put you in the optimistic camp in terms of looking (laughs) out at the world today?
1: Well, you know, I'm not unaware of the, the problems that happen. I tend to be reporting on them all the time. But I have changed my view Um, I I would like to be optimistic, but I am not pessimistic anymore. I don't look at a situation and think, well, that's, you know, nothing to be done over there. I see change happening, and I do see it from the women and girls. Look at them. In my book, I tell the story about 160 little girls in Kenya between the ages of 3 and 17, Jeff. They sued their government for failing to protect them from being raped. It's unbelievable this should even happen. And I followed these kids for three years. And sure enough, they're victims because they've all been raped. You know, there's an attitude in sub-Saharan Africa that if you have sex with a little girl, you will cure yourself of HIV AIDS. It's so appalling. There are rules in Kenya against rape, laws against rape. but, But there's impunity for the men. Nobody gets arrested. Nobody goes to jail. And these kids took on... What their mothers couldn't take on, their aunties couldn't, their grandmothers couldn't. So they felt very empowered. And, uh, but I don't want to dismiss the size of being a victim when your six-year-old has been raped by some creep. But these kids won. And when they won it, they won it for 10 million girls in kenya and now they're reshaping the judiciary they're retraining the police they're building awareness in the public and they're not at the finish line mind you neither are we but there's tremendous change and you know forever as long as i've been reporting and as long as i've read in history there's been a taboo on speaking out about sexual assault the taboo has been busted the women are talking, and you and I know if you can't talk about it, you can't change it. So these are the kinds of things that are fueling this uprising, and, and they're very encouraging stories, but I can tell you my book is full of some very disturbing stories as well. Mm-hmm,
0: right. Is this entirely a grassroots, bottom-up effort, or is there a role for, or has there been a role for leadership from above in any of this effort?
1: Well, what a good question you ask. You know, we used to always depend on political will and public will to make change. You know, when the politician takes his pen with the stroke of the pen, he changes the law. Or as, as members of the public, we march, we petition, we write, and we, we do that to force the politician to use the stroke of the pen to change. But There's something else happening today, and I will call that personal will. The case I just spoke to you about, 160 girls, which has made legal history all over the world because it's a precedent-setting case. You know how it started? A little girl called Millie, who's 12 years old, stood up at a village meeting outside of the city of Meru in northern Kenya, and she said, I want to go to school, but I can't go to school because I'm pregnant, and I'm pregnant because that man sitting over there, and she pointed at him, raped me. Who ever heard of this before? But this is personal will. This is people saying, this is what I want to happen. And it's really sweeping places today. Of course, it's fueled by Facebook, because there you, you get the, the guts of the story. You read the heart and soul of somebody's story. And, that, you know, newspaper stories and legal cases, they, they can be a bit dry when they're describing an incident. But you get people talking person to person And and they get very passionate, and this is what's changing everything today. Not that everything on Facebook is true, heaven forbid. As a journalist, I shudder at some of the things I read, but this is where this is coming from.
0: How much of it is economic dependent? How much of it is as a result of, to bring us back to to where we started, the fact that this empowerment is producing better economic conditions, and therefore that's what's really the most self-perpetuating part of it? You know,
1: Jeff, when you and I talk about economics, we tend to be referring to the stock market or to how our own mortgages is, is being paid out or or if our food bill is higher or lower. That's not so for the majority of the people in the world. But when you change the economy of a village in terms of you have saved enough money to put up a school, you have enough goods in the village that everyone is getting a meal. This makes a huge change in people. I remember covering the famine in Somalia, I think it was in 1991. And, and I was watching, in fact, I was riding on a Marines truck, watching them deliver wheat to different villages in, uh, in Somalia where people were starving. And they, everyone at the Somali people said to me, they will plant some of the wheat they will grind some of it to to make into to flour. They will they will boil some of it and eat it immediately. And they will trade some of it on the black market. And you know I gasped and thought, oh how terrible! How on earth can you you know take part in something that's going to end up in the black market? And the person I was talking to said, don't be silly. Until you get the shillings moving in the village, you're not going to change what's going on in the village. And you made an excellent point. So you, you people, I don't think most people in the world think in terms of the price of oil or whether or not we're going to have a pipeline. They think in terms of, can my kid go to school and are we going to eat tonight? And if you can, your, your life is better and you become... You become confident and and you you become a leader perhaps in your community but those are the differences I think between the way you and I look at the economy and the way most of the world looks at the economy and we know for a fact we can do that we can provide food we can we can alter the status of people in the village
0: as all of this is happening Talk a little bit about what you've seen, what your reporting tells you, in terms of the way men are responding to this.
1: Well, this is, this is one of my favorite stories. When I was doing the Women of the Arab Spring, I went to, uh, to see the NASRA Center for Feminist Studies. These are young women, and these were the real upstarts, you know, that were trying to change everything. To my great surprise, I got there, and half of their group were young men. But the same thing had happened when I was in Afghanistan doing a documentary on a group called Young Women for Change. And these kids, they've got more guts than Dick Tracy, I'm telling you, trying to change Afghanistan. But half of their group were young men. And I posed the same question to the young women in Cairo as I did to the young women in Kabul. I said, what's with the guys? We didn't invite guys to march with us in the 70s and 80s. And both groups said exactly the same thing. He said, we will never get to the finish line unless we walk together. I thought such wise words from these young people, because it's true, and it's the same in North America. Until the men and the women walk together, we're not going to eradicate the dreadful level of violence we have in our own communities.
0: How much of this, then, is generational as much as anything else?
1: Well, you ask a very good question. You know, the young people today, look at just parenting today, how involved fathers are today, as opposed to how involved fathers were in the past. Um, we, they don't look on it as as the child is raised by the mother. The, the fathers are, I'm not speaking for everybody, of course, but by and large, we've seen a very big change. And young people, by and large, do not look on women and girls the way older people did. That does not uh, include, of course, a terrible situation going on on the campuses in both the US and Canada today where rape is is uh, it, 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 it's entirely too common on our campuses and our campus leaders don't want to speak of it because they're afraid of the stigma and that it will reduce the, the reputation of the university but by and large young people get it and they always do don't they they've yes. always led the best movements for change in the world but they get it they know that that Oppressing women is, I think, in their opinion, silly. And, and objectifying women has to change. So I think it has very much to do with the generation.
0: And I guess the, the goal is to make sure that, that that younger generation doesn't become disaffected, that it doesn't become frustrated by failure.
1: Well, that's true. And if all the other studies are correct, then they won't become disaffected because they will see that the economy improves. They will see that their own lives are better. And again, it's not has nothing to do with women are better than men or or any of that. It has entirely to do with both sides of the gender story coming together to the table. Because together we can do anything.
0: Sally Armstrong, her book is Uprising, A New Age is Dawning for Every Mother's Daughter. Sally Armstrong, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. Okay.